Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I'm Drake. And I'm Kyle. And today we are with a special guest from McGill University, Danielle Rice. She's a third year PhD student. Welcome, Danielle. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Danielle, do you want to give us a little bit of uh, a background on what research you do and where you where you came from, what, what, what universities you're, you're currently attending? Yeah, for sure. So I did my undergrad at the University of Waterloo in psychology, and then I moved on to uh, do my master's in psychiatry at McGill, uh, and then now doing my clinical psych uh, PhD, as you mentioned. So I'm in two, awesome. two labs right now. Um, one is, is my PhD lab, which is focused on health psych research. So um, looking at things like people that have health concerns with comorbid mental health conditions. So for example, if someone has a stroke, they could be experiencing depression at the same time. Uh, so that's one of the areas that I look at. And then I'm in a second lab at, in, at the Ottawa hospital, uh, sort of doing a visiting scholar type position. And there we're looking at meta research, which is sort of basically easily stated as the research of research. So looking at uh, how do research articles report their findings? Are they reported clearly so that readers can understand what's happening? And then also are researchers able to reproduce the methods? So thinking about if everything has been reported enough for everyone to understand what's happening. Awesome. That's that's a really good way of putting it too. Uh, Meta-analyses are very complex because the way that researchers report things doesn't always add up and it's not easy to understand even for other researchers so whenever exactly. you have people reading other literature that aren't researchers it's like it's it's the degree of intensity has, has increased significantly on, on at least being able to understand those things oh for sure and then it can just be very um, confusing yeah oh yeah beyond confusing uh and we don't need science to be more confusing than it already is exactly <laughs> Thank you for coming on, Danielle. Um, we're actually really excited to talk about uh, your research. It's it's really interesting, and it's a it's a very important topic right now in Canada and in in North America. Um, so so what are we going to learn in this episode today? What are the things that you're going to try and teach us, or what are the learning objectives of today? So I'm hoping that today we're going to learn about a bit more about the opioid crisis that's happening in Canada and specifically what's happening in terms of research. How are we trying to address uh, the opioid crisis? I'll discuss a bit about uh, the research quality and, and things like that, since that certainly, as you mentioned, sort of influences what we can do with this research that we get on the opioid crisis. I'm sure a lot of people, uh, a lot of viewers have heard about this opioid crisis and, and may to some degree uh, know what it is or understand what it is, but some other, some some individuals and, and myself included don't really know that much about what's going on with this opioid crisis and what's really causing it or what what the uh, what the issues are. So before we dive into your research and, and the, the research in opioid crisis, uh, there's a couple of terms or terminology definitions that we need to kind of get under our belts before we move into this. So what kind of terminology do we need to know or do you as a researcher know that most people don't? Yeah, sure. So I guess one of the first ones is is the term opioid use disorder. Uh, so what that is, is it's a diagnosis in the DSM, uh, which is what we use to diagnose mental health disorders. So that's where the criteria for depression is, for example. So that's where opioid use disorder is. And it relates to basically the problematic use of opioids above and uh, beyond what you would be prescribed, for example, getting to a place where you're, you're using opioids um, more than you would want and potentially craving them and changing things in your life around 
of these drugs, whether they're prescribed or not. Right. So it's kind of controlling, having a little bit more control over your life or more, uh, just more conflict due to that opioid use. And it's actually, uh, it's a detriment to your, to your well-being, right? That's exactly it. Yeah. So someone that has a, the diagnosis of opioid use disorder would potentially have a significant impairments, be it maybe an inability to work or disrupting their home life, things like that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's that's really good to know to differentiate. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about opioid use disorder. Exactly. So diagnosable from the DSM's criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a term that you're going to use today. It's called OAT. Do you want to dive into what that means? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I'm from the psych background, so I'm not going to get into the medical piece because I don't know it well enough. But it, the short mm-hmm. and understandable version is that OAT stands for opioid agonist therapy which is um, a maintenance therapy used to try and reduce um, the illicit use of drugs. So trying to reduce um, the opioid use disorder by giving something like methadone is a common example, uh, which is a Mm -hmm. slow release as opposed to the illicit drugs, which are quite quick, um, a quite potent release and are followed by a crash. So um, with methadone, for example, it's prescribed at a dose that's supposed to be safe. Uh, whereas something like fentanyl, if you're if you're overdosing on it, you're getting to a point where it's no longer safe and could have these. Um, it, it could result in overdose and potentially death. Uh, so yes, so oat is really the something that's used quite common to try and um, get people off of uh, the opioids that they're using incorrectly, I guess, or problematically. So it's kind of keeping the substance within their body at a slower slower deterioration so it stays within their system longer and do they do they feel less withdrawal symptoms is that the end is that the goal of it yes. i'm not actually too familiar with it yep yep exactly they're trying to they would feel less withdrawal symptoms which makes it mm-hmm. in theory easier to stop using to the extent that they have been using because quitting cold turkey can be quite a difficult um, experience physiologically on the body the symptoms sort of like you would potentially see in the movies for other types mm-hmm. of drugs that's what you could imagine with this what a what a close example would be something like the uh nicotine patch for like trying to quit can't quit smoking would yes. that be a, yes. a close neighbor yeah that's perfect yeah that's so it's keeping it. like keeping the nicotine within the body at a, at a rate that's handling these withdrawal symptoms that can be really i mean withdrawal symptoms can really impact you psychologically and physiologically and it can have huge impacts on the way that you respond to things and, and how you live your day so Mm-hmm. that's it's really good to know is that it that we're is those, are those only terms that we're going to be using to think, that, that we should be really defining yeah i think those are the main ones as others come up i can describe but it's oat that's going to be the sort of odd sounding one that you may have to awesome. uh, remember yeah right yeah, yeah absolutely i mean okay. i think i think you defined it in a very uh, eloquent way so it going forward when we think of oat, we can just think okay this is a slow mm-hmm. uh how do you was the terminology used it's like a slow sort of maintenance uh, to maintain what's happening in your body at an okay level i don't know if maybe that's an easier way mm-hmm. to remember it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a, that makes it easier for me it's it's less of a quick response it's more of a slow release exactly uh, that that allows you to kind of handle those withdrawal symptoms or combat those withdrawal symptoms mm-hmm. i don't think we actually define what opioid is so so do you want to define what opioids are so what it, why are people using opioids? What, are, what do they do to uh, elicit such fanfare? So opioids in general are prescribed to try and manage uh, acute or chronic pain, um, but they can have quite numbing effects in terms of pain, but they can also give you a high. 
uh, if you take a high enough or a large enough dose. Uh, so that's where mm-hmm. we're getting into when larger um, quantities are being prescribed or just people taking more uh, opioids than would be intended. Right. And, and like, for, to my understanding, they have some sort of morphine like effects. So they're, they're used mainly for pain relief, including a, like things like anesthesia. Exactly. Very common in, uh, in surgeries, for example, for knee, uh, knee replacements or hip replacements are big ones. Also sometimes used okay. for um, C-sections for women giving birth. Those are some of the common ones. What, are, what opioids are being abused right now in the opioid crisis, I guess? Mm-hmm. Like what is the most common drugs that are being used? So some of the very common ones are fentanyl, which is likely one that um, listeners may have heard about because it's been in, in the news. Um, there's also heroin and morphine, oxycodone. Uh, those are, I think, some of the bigger ones that people would be familiar with. Different uh, opioids are different than something like cocaine, for example, which is sometimes um, sometimes confused uh, for an opioid. Right. And so the effects are different, are uniquely different to relieve pain, not necessarily to or they have different side effects that might lead individuals to use them or abuse them. Yes, exactly. So they can also be compared to something like psycho um, stimulants that where people use to Adderall, for example, to stay up and study. You're not supposed to use it that way, but that's sometimes how it's used. Uh, opioids are different Absolutely. than that. Awesome. So Danielle, uh, now that you've given us the uh, tools that we need in order to explain or talk about this issue going forward, uh, what does the field already know? So what's happening right now in the field is that we know that these rates of um, Canadians actually dying from opioid poisoning are really, really high. So in 2016, more than 2,800 Canadians uh, died from opioid poisoning. And there was also a 281% increase in the number of deaths that were specifically due to fentanyl overdose, which is an opioid. Um, when you compared the numbers from 2016 to 2015. So the rates are, are massive and are having a huge impact on Canadians. That's an incredible rate. I mean, that statistic alone is, is really telling. Uh, just before we started recording, I looked up a couple things. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2017, it was expected um, just solely fentanyl deaths uh, was about 4,000 estimated across Canada in the year. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah, the rates and that's are going raising. Off of 2,800 Canadians dying from opioid poisoning in 26. That's, yeah, it's continuing to grow. It almost yeah. seems like. Yeah. yeah, it's continuing to grow. And, and that's that's specifically fentanyl-related deaths. So it's not just opioid-related deaths either. So it's not other opioids. It's suspected fentanyl overdoses. Anyways, um, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to kind of derail that. but No, no, um, it's, it's very relevant. So, Danielle, now knowing kind of the extent to which uh, Canadians are facing this opioid crisis, what are some effective intervention tools that clinicians and physicians and the public can be using? So, largely, uh, the most effective ways based on research so far um, to try and address opioid use disorder is using OAT therapy, uh, which we discussed before, trying to um, give a pharmacological or medical um, solution to this concern. Um, there's also been some focus on psychological interventions, which I'll certainly be discussing more. But so far, what's been found in the literature is that if we use psycho- psychological interventions alone, this doesn't quite address um, opioid use disorder enough to make a huge difference. So right now, people really rely on OAT uh, to try and combat this, uh, this addiction. You want to kind of deal with the biological effects like OAT would be doing, right? Mm-hmm. With 
dealing with these withdrawal symptoms and the actual drug itself, and then adding a second layer to that with these psychological interventions um, to address uh, maybe cognitive cognitive cues mm -hmm. or um, environmental cues, like going to places where you might be more apt to uh, to want to do those drugs. Yeah, it seems like that is a general trend within the research at least is to kind of pair both of those and when you take them separately they're not as effective right that's yes that's the idea and especially with addiction research that is what's found is that the biological piece is so important uh whereas something like mm -hmm. depression for example it's a bit more um uh, what's the word there's a bit more arguments and less consensus about do we need antidepressants or therapy or do we need both whereas here it's it's right. not so much the case it's definitely that we need that medical piece with maybe a bit of a sprinkle of psychosocial stuff on top and with opioids we're not even sure to the extent that the psychosocial interventions help uh, so that will lead into what i'm doing absolutely yeah the biological impact is so strong right that you have to address that first before you can even consider doing these psychological interventions. That's exactly it's, it. It's very interesting because I think regardless of what the situation is, we want to kind of have a way of addressing things without prescribing pills that everybody can do on their own. And I think that's where the psychological intervention, there's so much push to have something that you can do mm -hmm. uh, cognitively to change the way you think about things or whether or not you use uh, drugs, maybe. Right, for sure. There's often an underlying uh, mental health concerns that come with the addiction. So I guess separate, whether it be depression or anxiety or other difficulties that people may have. And we just find that a pill alone doesn't always help that. So that's where, as you mentioned, the psychosocial piece can be certainly relevant. That's a great point too. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of work uh, within cancer and depression. I find it it's, it's a little bit similar in the sense that um, cancer patients are often prescribed antidepressants, mm -hmm. even though they may, they may not be depressed, uh, just because it's assumed that they kind of coincide together. Uh, and there's, like, there's been studies that specifically have shown that, like, I mean, clinical depression, generally the, the prevalence rates among cancer patients is around 13 to 40% of, of cancer patients. Okay. But that's not a hundred percent no <laughs> and they're not at all. and they're still generally just prescribing antidepressants assuming that this is the case i find it it's it's kind of a parallel uh parallel to what you're what you're addressing is that individuals that are using these these drugs they they need these uh oh and other 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 methods of addressing the biological issues but when it comes to uh prescribing and and best plans of action uh, there's always a lot of there's a there's a significant divide in the literature regardless of what the chronic uh, chronic illness is or the the uh the disability or diagnosis is yeah i completely agree and I've, I've done i've read a little bit about the cancer and depression but also on stroke and depression and it's a similar phenomenon like you're saying but the other thing that has to be considered or what has to be considered with it is that when we're taking um, any type of drugs that are prescribed such as antidepressants, there are often harms that are related, which seem to just get sometimes swept under the rug if we're prescribing these antidepressants to every cancer patient, for example. Uh, we do have to think about the harms that can come with those drugs. So again, that's why, as you mentioned, maybe the psychosocial piece is something that people like. Mm -hmm. Ab absolutely, yeah. So knowing what we do now about kind of how we've gotten here, where are we going? What are the kinds of questions that we're asking as a, as a, as a research industry? 
So based on the the numbers that were quoted uh, before about these statistics with opioid use disorder and the deaths that are happening, there's been a massive push push for um, reformulating guidelines. So guidelines that are used, for example, in hospitals um, when people come in with opioid use disorder. So there's been a big push to refine these guidelines actually for the sake of prevention. So rather than waiting until someone's developed an addiction, trying to prevent that from happening, which is a pretty cool thing to see because it's often not uh, where the research goes. We're usually picking up the pieces, but it seems like right now there is this focus on, okay, well, let's prescribe uh, fewer doses and let's not prescribe opioids first. Maybe this is a second line um, treatment for someone's pain. So that's where a lot of the research has been going. I mean, on the surface, it sounds very progressive. Yeah. That, hey, maybe instead of treating things with pills immediately, we can take a step back and try and look at some sort of behavioral or uh, psychological uh, interventions first. Or what are the combination of interventions that we can use to prevent us from getting to that stage? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, I completely agree. Especially with people that have pain, there's a lot of uh, disability that comes with pain. Let's try and get some some plan or package of interventions together first before we're giving out opioids. Yeah, absolutely. And and the the amount like the variance in, in individuals that are dealing with pain, right? Pain is such a huge factor in all and in, in the majority of chronic illnesses or even acute illnesses, right? Um, where it's really that's the driving force generally for people to go to hospitals Yes, is exactly. the fact that they're experiencing this pain. Mm-hmm. People will put up with a lot, but when it gets painful, <laughs> suddenly they're in the <laughs> ER. Like, yeah, it's just nature. I mean, it's human nature. We don't want to be in yeah. pain. So yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Sure. Um, is there anything else that you want to kind of preface before we get into your work? Um, be it within the examples of questions being asked in the field or how the field addresses those issues? Yeah, I mean, I can definitely mention that. So as, as was discussed, OAT is what's, um, what's really being prioritized in guidelines based on the evidence right now. But a lot of um, clinicians, doctors, psychiatrists, whoever it may be um, that are managing people with opioid use disorder, there's a fairly constant theme of we do need psychosocial interventions, but so far in terms of guidelines, we have no idea which psychosocial interventions we should be using or uh, benefit patients most, if they are benefiting patients. So that's where we're stuck in these guidelines where we have OAT being recommended. There are the, the steps of what should be first line, second line, third line, and the psychosocial piece, we don't have that equivalent uh, recommendation for treatment or treatment type. Right. So, uh- yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so do you want to give our listeners a kind of an idea of what the debate is bet- within the psycho- psychological intervention research? So what types of psychological interventions are being suggested uh, in this area? There is a massive, massive variety of recommendations or, or suggested mm-hmm. um suggested approaches based on individual studies by themselves without necessarily comparing them. So we have things from couples therapy, there are recommendations for having couples therapy, family therapy, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, where people are working on strategies to sort of um, alter the ways that they're thinking and, and managing uh, their opioid use disorder. And then there are mm-hmm. things um, like acceptance and commitment there many types of therapy with no real consistency of what we should be doing or what may be better for this specific population yeah and they're are, are they differentiating between the populations like the demographics 
of these like uh, opioid users or the opioid opioid abusers i guess in this in this case no not so far um so far we don't have a good sense of if one recommendation is for a specific group uh, because there just has been a lot of individual studies done by themselves so it's hard to translate uh, if they did family therapy with youths but they also did family therapy in, in let's say people with average age of 50 we don't have a sense if they're comparable to each other or if this is being done for a reason like did we target youth because they live in the home with the family which would certainly make sense to me um Mm -hmm. but i i'm not sure we don't have a good idea of why we have so many different approaches yeah i think that point in isolation is a really good point danielle um it's something that is maybe a big in my opinion i think it's a huge misconception within uh our society at least is that one study can tell you the answer to everything or it can tell can explain everything on in one study. That's not the case. Absolutely. Uh, if you have a sample, a, a specific sample of people that you're looking at, that'll tell you what's going on with that ca- in that case with that specific amount of people. Um, not necessarily say that, okay, we looked at these individuals that are addicted to opioids and that this, this intervention really worked like CBT mm-hmm. really worked for this, this group. So it'll work for everybody. That's not how it works. <laughs> right. Exactly. You need center. You need synthesis. <laughs> you need other people to, to, to cooperate these findings and test this in ways and, and, and through ways that you you might talk a little, a little bit about, uh, through meta-analyses, researching research and, and looking at the findings of, of, of all these, all these research articles. Yeah. It's such a good point. Um, interesting that you mentioned that because a different, uh, study that reviewed um, multiple studies in a meta-analysis what they actually found which is quite interesting is that a lot of the samples that are tested for interventions for opioid use disorder um, both for OAT and for psychosocial interventions are excluding people for example with opioid use disorder who have comorbid pain or comorbid depression or anxiety so you've now cut out a lot of the people who are actually um, having this problem and having this addiction. So what we have in terms oh, wow. of research is quite different than maybe what we get in a sample of 50 opioid use, um, people with opioid use disorder around around your your home area. Absolutely. That's I mean, an amazing distinction between an actual clinical sample and mm-hmm. a research sample exactly. and how absolutely distinctly different they are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's amazing. That's that's. And, and it really highlights some of the shortcomings of the research in that field, right? Certainly, yeah. And the need to sort of look critically at the, at the methods. Who are these people that are, that are being included? When, every time you're doing research, you want it to be generalizable to the, to the overall population or to whatever population you're trying to, uh, to conclude results or, or to, to find implications for, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, I lost my thought. Um, it just damn, makes it more I difficult to be generalizable when we're only including people <laughs> without oh, yeah, pain. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Right? Like, pain begets pain right like when you have pain it it doesn't it's not necessarily like oh i have knee pain and exclusively knee pain uh (laughs) especially when it comes to chronic illnesses when you're where you're being prescribed these drugs you may have multiple generally what the the older you get and the more chronic illnesses you have uh are when you get a chronic illness you're more apt to get another chronic illness that might create more pain in a different area or a different different type of pain and those things are inevitable especially as you get older that the the likelihood of getting more more pain throughout your body is going to increase 
and if we're ignoring that that's it's very hard to kind of give a proper assessment or or intervention for those kind of those individuals which is the majority of individuals (laughs) yeah yeah and as you're mentioning that that i guess probably would also influence the age of people if they're not including uh many people that have pain we've probably cut out a big chunk of people over the age of i don't know how old but let's say 60. yeah and i I think that's it's interesting because i do i've done a couple uh i've reviewed research in arthritis and arthritis is a a prime example for pain right it's it's Mm -hmm. it's a hallmark uh symptom of arthritis and osteoarthritis is is most prominent in, in elderly individuals above right. 65 <laughs> so i imagine those would be the individuals that would be getting those prescriptions and and, yes. and they may be ignored in, the, in that situation yeah it's very unfortunate it's, to, it's, to see these it's limitations very tough. yeah yeah definitely well being aware of the limitations is the first step right i think very and true. i think that's the beauty of what you're doing is you're very well aware of what where it's lacking and and what to do to kind of uh address those issues is what we're going to be talking about today mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thank you <laughs> so so let's get into the work that you're doing then danielle i think uh, you've done a phenomenal job of kind of setting the background setting the idea of what literature looks like right now and what uh what research is doing to address the opioid crisis or how it looks so what are you doing right now what is your research question how are you going about addressing it so what i'm going to be focusing on or what i am focusing on with the team that's located in ottawa is taking all these individual studies that we've been discussing that focus on psychosocial interventions used with oat um, to try and combine this this literature and get a better sense of what's happening overall so we want to make sure that we're using approaches that will consider these the limitations as we mentioned of these individual studies as well as their strengths so one of the approaches that we're using to do this is um, using systematic review methodology maybe this is worth me describing a little bit um yeah yeah absolutely so you talked a little bit about meta-analyses but this is very this is kind of a subdivision of meta-analyses so yeah could you explain it a little bit for the audience for sure so what we're doing overall is something called a network meta-analysis but one of the first steps in this is doing a systematic search of all of the literature that's been done everywhere to try and identify the studies um, specifically rcts randomized controlled trials um that has what, what ran- yeah do we know trials? okay randomized controlled <laughs> it trials. might be worth defending okay are um, a type of study design that is in theory one of the higher uh, quality types of study design it's when a bunch of participants or people for example those with opioid use disorder are randomly assigned to one group versus another group so let's pretend that some one of these groups is getting nothing so placebo maybe a pill Uh, while another group is getting oat, then we want to see uh, down the line, maybe after two months, how are these people doing? How are they comparing on the intervent or the measures that are relevant to them? So maybe one of the very important ones is going to be how many drugs are they using? How how many opioids? How prevalent is the drug use Mm -hmm. after having either had oat or placebo? So that's one of the ways that that researchers try and compare an intervention in a way that's a little bit uh supposed to be a little bit less biased than other ways that makes sense right and so that's one of the the types of uh research articles or or types of studies that could be done but there's there's a bunch of other designs that can be used right exactly 
So with our systematic review, we're just looking at RCTs because they're in theory a bit of the higher quality studies, not always by any means, um, but it's just uh, helpful to get a fairly similar sample of study designs. And then what we're looking at is the RCTs that have tested psychosocial interventions, any type, be it individual therapy, family therapy, couple therapy. We're looking at everything and every sample that has also involved OAT. So then what we do is really compile this evidence and look at how, what are the quality of these studies? So the limitations that we mentioned, we want to take these into account when then looking at everything together. And then after that, you basically get into the meta-analysis piece, which is looking at the results. So the quantitative numbers and comparing how these all look in the different types of psychosocial interventions. So does someone in family therapy in general, if maybe there's five studies that have looked at family therapy, how do those five studies compare to, let's say, the 10 studies that have been done on individual CBT? Does that make sense? Right. That is a very good way of explaining a systematic review and and the the benefits of that, right? You're being able to uh, address how things are uh, how things are measured. So how studies mm-hmm. are measuring this through RCTs or through uh, daily diary design, ho- however it's done. Yeah. Uh, the methodology that they're using, and then the actual results, uh, and being able to to kind of form an educated opinion as to what the research is saying right now. Exactly. And and so, and so does is the. The large benefit, to my understanding, the large benefit of that is that you can now address the holes or the flaws in the de- in in research up to this point and address future directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's exactly more, right. Yeah, more adequately, right? You're able to yeah. to address them more adequately. And we can do something when, well, as whereas you may not be able to in the individual studies take out subgroups. So, for example, only look at people that are under age 18 because sometimes your inclusion criteria is adults. What we can do with meta analyses and systematic reviews is actually pull out some subgroups. So, let's look at the women that are pregnant and have opioid use disorder, and we'll have a large enough sample to really do that. Same with youths. Let's take out all the studies that just looked at youths. Uh, And when we have all these studies together, we have a pretty big sample size, which you just can't get um, from individual studies alone. Very relevant point is we actually want to know the benefits and the potential harms. If there are some studies that have noted harms, like maybe this is a very um, difficult, maybe it's difficult for for people to discuss, you know, their emotions or these other approaches. We want to know that as well. So the question is, what are the the relative benefits and harms, if there, uh, when comparing these different type of psychosocial interventions when used with OAT? Uh, so Danielle, knowing that, uh, what do you expect to find? Well, based on previous meta-analyses that have specifically focused on OAT, what I'm expecting, and as well as what we were anticipating based on the literature review, is that we're going to come up with a lot of studies that don't have a lot of overlapping measures that actually allow us to do a really nice meta-analysis. So although I led us to this, the nice methods that we're planning to use, I anticipate it's going to be quite difficult to do a solid meta-analysis and that we may have to only do this on a couple outcomes that are similar between studies, um, and that we're really going to have to be stuck looking at the data and post-hoc seeing what overlaps. So I imagine there's going to be tons of heterogeneity, and a really, I think we're going to have quite a difficult time getting an answer of what is the best psychosocial intervention. Right, and by so, heterogeneity... Oh, yeah, no, I was about to ask about post-hoc and then heterogeneity, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. For sure. So heterogeneity, to do a meta-analysis well, 
we have to make sure that we're including uh, similar samples and similar studies. So this is one of the reasons why, for example, we're only looking at RCTs because it gets a little too muddy uh, in the analyses if we're comparing, for example, apples and oranges. So having a very heterogeneous sample is what we expect, meaning that I think we'll find some studies that have only looked at uh, the impact of psychosocial interventions on people's depression scores, for example. And I think we'll find other studies where they've only looked at do people come in with a negative urine screen? And I think we'll find other studies that'll look at how's the family dynamic after psychosocial interventions. And with this, we can't really compare um, these findings. I, I like the way that you put it. It's, it's basically like you're speaking different languages, more or less, whenever it comes down to it. Like, I, we were talking before you said um, the way that you do your research, it can, it can be a different language. The way that you talk about s certain outcomes or certain uh, like using RCT or mm -hmm. using different designs like that. Uh, it's, it's a dance and it's a, it's a different <laughs> concept every time or a different way of looking at things. And, and that can be really hard to translate. And that's what you're trying to do with your work. Yes, exactly. And with opioid use disorder, one of the interesting ones where we're speaking different languages is when people, uh, when researchers will look at the same outcome of are people using drugs and are they abstaining from drugs or not? So it sounds like a simple yes, no answer. However, this mm -hmm. can be either self-report or it can be from a urine analysis, which gives you totally different information. And this has been shown in other research, for example, in the exercise realm or health realm, where we ask people, uh, how many calories are you consuming a day? And we just grossly underestimate this when we compare to people actually tracking what they're doing or the diary type studies where we're inputting somewhere what we're eating. And it's just a very relevant parallel example where what we're saying to someone may be different than what we can actually track and measure more objectively. You can see it in everyday interactions on what you're hearing from some individuals, right? You're like, sure. oh, you talk to a coworker. How much have you worked out this week? Oh, I've worked out five days a week. I don't know if that's actually true. If I were to observe you all week, it might not be necessarily true. And I think that's the issue with our, that's a limitation within research is, are you going to ask someone to self-report and, and try and give an accurate representation of their life? Or are you going to watch them and actually measure what what's going on in their life? There's two different things. Right. And then if we try and compare those two different things, we're going to get a, a kind of mismatch of the truth. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, I think it's, that's some of the funniest stuff or some of the very interesting stuff within research when it comes down to uh, looking at someone's self reports and then seeing if you can get an accurate measurement of what's actually occurring, though that disparity is very funny and very interesting because <laughs> it's, it's human nature to kind of uh, stretch the truth, I guess. Yes. And that's something that as researchers, we have to account for when we're talking about self-report. And, that, and that's why we address it as limitations in our research mm -hmm. when we're doing self-report work, right? Yeah, uh, definitely. Humans want to look good. Like <laughs> We want to sound better than we actually are on an everyday basis. And sometimes it just comes across uh, in self-reports. Yes, that's exactly uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything else that you want to touch on? Uh, w regarding your work uh, before we go into the brain break, Danielle? I mean, the one thing I'll just sort of uh, mention in terms of how this, what the implications are, even if we find that 
our samples are not overly comparable. One of the places that we're taking this, this research since we anticipate some of these um, limitations is that we're hoping to come up with something that's called a core outcome set so that these issues don't happen in the future. So that we're all hopefully moving forward doing research on opioid use disorder with a, a similar outcome set, what we, which we would call a core outcome set. So that's a side piece that will come from this work uh, where we're trying to decide with uh, patients themselves, caregivers, pharmacists, psychologists, everyone uh, on the same page, getting a consensus of what are the top most important measures that each future RCT should include. That's perfect for getting all of these researchers that are doing really impactful work mm-hmm. on the same page before they yes. even do their, before they even formulate their studies. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that that is a ma- that is has so much value within research whenever you're talking about just kind of trying to sin- like cooperate and continue to to work towards the same means in an effective manner. I mean, there's a lot of good good um good uh Jesus Christ, I'm bad with my words right now. <laughs> <laughs> good, great. Fantastic. <laughs> um they're having a tough go. Everybody has like everybody has good intentions. And, and when it comes down to research, good intentions sometimes isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in a sense, like it's great to have good intention, but as if you're working together in the same way or or have this kind of assimilation of research like you're doing with your work, uh, it's easier to translate that into actual effective uh, interventions or improving individuals' lives on a daily basis. Yes, yeah. And with that, we'll head into our brain break. On the other side, we'll come back with some mis- misconceptions and a water cooler fact or two. Awesome. Thanks, Danielle. Uh, so we're back finally from 
insert song here. <laughs> uh, Neil Young. What, do you the Needle to and the Damage Done by Neil Young. So, Danielle, let's start it off with a popular misconception or myth in your research area. Are there any? Yes, definitely. Um, so one of the common <laughs> myths that people may not uh, know about or if they know they may agree with it. It's that we should be using abstinence approaches rather than harm reduction strategies. So this is the idea that no one should be using oat. Instead, we should be going um, cold turkey, so to speak. So this is a bit of a controversial myth and one that may understandably evoke some emotions in people. But if we really try and take the emotions out of it and just listen to the research, what we do know is that more than 80% of people who are only on psychological interventions are only using psychological interventions without any medication, such as oat, return to drug use. So that's 80% of the people who tried using, um, who try to go without using oat are returning to, to opioid use. Unfortunately, these results wow. are pretty similar if you're just doing medication detox. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So although huh. we may strive for actions, so, this isn't what we're finding is effective right off the bat. Right. And I don't, personally, I don't know of any abstinence programs that are more effective. Can, can you guys think of any? No. I'm trying to. I, I can't think off the top of my head of any abstinence programs that really are more beneficial, specifically within drug use. Uh, <laughs> we could also talk about uh, like um, sexual, like, I mean, STDs and, and sexual intercourse with teenage pregnancies. That's a, that's a when I think of abstinence uh, programs, that's generally what my head goes to mm-hmm. is the idea that... Uh, Safe sex is no sex, <laughs> is is right. the, basically the protocol, and it's the same thing within within uh, your area. Is if you want to quit, just stop using the drug, exactly. and that kind of thinking is just so. Uh, I don't think it's empathetic at all. I don't think you're taking the the place of the user or the individual that's trying to stop uh, mm-hmm. into consideration, or really giving them enough thought or being sensitive to their issues for sure and the physiological aspect it's almost ignoring that this person would then have to go through withdrawal symptoms which is quite difficult and then continue not using it's yeah yeah uh, it's pretty tough to imagine people forcing that on others if you especially if you haven't been there yourself exactly i think uh yeah that's a huge part right not really being able to understand what they're going through or having that kind of empathy for those individuals Mm -hmm. uh it's tough. And even if, even beyond empathy, just having the perspective, uh, sometimes it takes individuals to be affected by it uh, directly or through family members to really understand the complexity that there is uh, to trying to quit uh, substance abuse. And sometimes it is sort of surprisingly, sometimes it is the families who actually have had, for example, a, a child uh, die from overdose who then take the quite uh, severe stance or, or prominent stance of abstinence because they've seen how mm. the impact. So sometimes it ends up that these are the ones who say, okay, you know what? They should have never, it should have been abstinence all the way. Right. Yeah. Which, so sure, it, from instead the of, but... uh, instead of trying to tailor things to pre- not necessarily just preventing it, but like if it, if it occurs at all, then you're pretty much you're pooched right <laughs> like, right exactly. if you it's the perspective like it, you said it's sometimes missing yeah yeah absolutely and not having that kind of perspective is really impactful so where do you think that 
that originated from? Where's that myth really coming from? I think some of it is this idea of all or nothing. Um, again, your example with the the sex ed stuff is is relevant too. Do parents want to think about their their young teen getting pregnant? No. So sometimes it's that all or nothing, okay, well, either they're having no sex and definitely not getting pregnant, or they're being given condoms, which means they are having sex and they could get pregnant. So it's this, I think, I would imagine it's this dichotomous style of, well, opioid opioids that aren't prescribed are bad, so just don't do any of them. So I think it's a little mm-hmm. counterintuitive to, to be giving out um, to people who are already addicted to something. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, it's to use again to use the sex ed example because mm-hmm. it's it's just so readily it's a lot of parents will think of this as their kids grow up they're like oh when should i have the talk with them or should i have the right. talk it, that's uncomfortable it's 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 naturally going to be uncomfortable uh for most for most parents and mm-hmm. so is that comfort is that uncomfortableness going to lead you to say ah i just don't want my kid to have sex because they're, they're they're a kid and i don't want them to have have sex but ignoring the fact that uh teenagers have sex (laughs) it's actually what's gonna happen do we want to protect them or do we want to just like ignore that fact and say this is not good for you so we're not going to give you any of these tools to adapt to it very similar in the sense should we should we say don't do the drugs at all and then give them no no guidance if they do do the drugs that's Mm -hmm. a very (laughs) it's very problematic Right. Yeah, that's exactly. And it's very touchy too. I, I can, I can certainly understand that parents have the, are uncomfortable with this, as you said, but you kind of have to push through that. If your kid's doing drugs illegally, you have to see, okay, what's best based on the reality. What can we do that's in their best interest? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I mean, they're, they're very similar in the sense uh, of, of treating it either as don't do it at all or, uh, if you do do it, there's these things that you can do to prevent uh, it becoming an issue. Those are two mm-hmm. different approaches that are very drastically different uh, yes. and can lead to very drastic outcomes too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that 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 is absolutely... I, I, I don't, we don't know, obviously, but I think that's a good inclination. I think that's a good idea as to where that kind of heuristic's coming from. Yeah. Um, and so why it's why it's so prominent i mean i think that's kind of it right like <laughs> i i think so yeah i mean i think that the prominence is sort of intuitive based on what we said and i think sometimes we're missing this perspective that the goal is the same whether we're using harm reduction strategies or trying to push abstinence the goal is to help people reduce these harms that they may be experiencing secondary to an addiction we just know that one of these strategies based on research, works a bit better. So if we think about how the the underlying goal is the same and just focus on what we know works, then we could maybe have it be a little less prominent instead of having this idea that it's so dichotomous and so different, that the two approaches are so different from each other. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's kind of funny to my, whenever I think about it, it's like, they should be hand in hand, right? Like For abstinence sure. is your number one plan. Yeah. When abstinence does not succeed, <laughs> this is plan B. This is what we're going to do. <laughs> and like plan <laughs> B is working towards them. abstinence again too. It's not that this is, yeah. that's it. It's okay, let's do this in a gradual way that, that makes sense. 
yeah, it's not combative. It should be, no. they should be hand in hand, right? Like, yeah. uh, ideally, you should not be abusing drugs, regardless of what the drug is, or uh, exposing yourself to risky, I think, I think the best way to put it is, you should not be exposing yourself to risky situations, mm-hmm. regardless of what those risky situations are, be it sexually, be it through drug use, through substance use, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, risky behaviors in general. Uh, ideally, you will limit those. But if you decide to to interact in, in risky situations in your life, which inevitably people will do, exactly, what is the best protocol to to reduce the the negative outcomes that could be associated with that? Yeah, that's a perfect way to to uh, sum it up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the myth is it's very prominent though. It, it's it's seen all the time. I I still see it today constantly through social media and things like that mm-hmm. where it's just like why even why would you do this it's just it's an abstinence thing it's it's more of like uh addressing the issue before it occurs and then ignoring it after it's occurred and just right. saying well you asked for this yeah yeah so danielle knowing that uh you know what are the actual scientific reasons behind or what is the scientific truth behind this myth well I think that there is, uh, this is an important thing to think about because the science tells us that in terms of effectiveness, those that are trying to achieve abstinence will unfortunately not, in general, they won't do well. Uh, So what we know is harm reduction approaches do um, outperform abstinence approaches. So while we can try and encourage abstinence, we have to think about what the science says. Uh, So in terms of the truth, there is the other aspect that I said 80% is the stat um, of these people who try abstinence or just psychosocial approaches will return back to their drug use. Um, there is an important 20% there that I, that I have to wonder, well, what would be better for them? Maybe that 20%, right. maybe that is an abstinence approach, or maybe, that's, maybe there are other factors with those 20% that we have to think about. So while I want to throw out that idea, there's 20% of people who are left in the air for me. You know, maybe there's some religious belief or personality factors, some more individual differences that mean maybe there's some set, some subset of people that do okay uh, without using oat. One thing that really gets me is is people who seem to engage in absence-only approaches. Um, it seems to me that they want to demonstrate, in some way at least, that by... Uh, being abstinent and being able to just sort of kick the habit as it was, they can demonstrate to others around them that the the actual addiction had no power over them in the first place and that by sheer willpower, they're able to overcome it and it was never a problem. Um, and part of me wonders about that from a non-clinical perspective and I was wondering if you might be able to comment on that. Yeah, that's so interesting. I've never... I've never heard of that thought or, or, or thought about it that way because when I think of it clinically, um, what I find, maybe that's, that's prevalent, I would, I would think, but another thing that I, I certainly see with other types of addictions is almost this, um, this untrust of the self. This, it's like when you go to eat, I think of uh, some of my clients that have eating, um, eating disorders, especially binge eating disorder, this idea that, well, if I eat one cookie, I know that I'll eat 20. It's that right. there's no trust in the self for doing halfway. And that it's the absence violation effect. Okay. It's the the doer the doer die. So I, yes. I have a I have one piece of cook I have one cookie, so I have to eat the whole plate of cookies. Right. Uh, because I haven't I haven't uh, maintained my abstinence. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that that's exactly it. That's that's what I see clinically. 
Um, but I think that 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 is a good point, Kyle, about maybe this is a bit of proof that really it wasn't as much of an addiction as everyone else said. An interesting. Thought. I could see that being a problem as well. so. An example that I could use is uh, things like diets and mm-hmm. uh, like diet plans where people are anecdotally contributing contributing knowledge to to thousands of people about their diets or their 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 workout routines that may be actually very unhealthy for most individuals but they're treating it as fact in the sense that uh oh i eat i eat only bananas every day all day i eat 20 bananas and that's my meal but i'm really super fit and then other people Mm -hmm. start thinking that that is an appropriate diet and they start following that when it's really not healthy for most individuals you know it's just very it's it's sad to see that on on social media because there are so many people who really do believe that like if someone says to eat only bananas and that's how you get that that body or this lifestyle there are people Mm -hmm. who genuinely believe that and then if they don't have a banana we're back in this cycle of okay well well now I might as well just eat all the cookies because I'm off of my banana diet anyway (laughs) yeah it's it's unbelievable (laughs) and things like I mean not even to go to the extreme, the banana diet is probably the extreme, but like <laughs> yeah. juicing cleanses and things like that, yeah. right? Like where people are like, I'm going to literally reduce my caloric intake to probably like a fifth of what I've usually consume and mm-hmm. still think that I'm going to feel okay. And they're, they're putting them through those, that pain, those with, it's almost withdrawal symptoms with your, your lack, you're starving yourself. This could be used in the example of what you what exactly what you're talking about, right? This abstinence violation effect, whenever people are no longer absent, do they just fall back off and going cold turkey is another example, right? Yes. Some people it might work. The 20% you talked about, 20% of people that were may, may benefit from going cold turkey. But if those mm-hmm. individuals are saying that that's the only way to do it, and that that's what we're promoting, that could be very detrimental to those other 80% of individuals that that can't do that. That's exactly it. And with that 20%, as far as I have seen, we don't have any sense of who they are right now. We don't know. So it's if we were going to put our, our money on what's going to work, I would certainly put my money on the harm reduction for the mm. for the statistics sake. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's a great example or it's it's a great point that a lot of research and all research that we do, it's not going to fit or check the box for every individual. Mm-hmm. It's saying, this is what we're finding on average. And this is what we really, what we've shown that benefits a lot of people. And this is why we're doing the research. It doesn't mean that this will work for every single individual because we can't control for all those variables. No, no, exactly. Cool. So that's a really cool myth. And it's something that is very insightful. And a lot of people will really benefit from hearing from you and your, having your knowledge on that in that background. So I thank you for, for bringing that to our attention. Yes, thank you. Um, let's go into a water cool effect. Okay. Let's, uh, so you've got, you've got a couple of things here that you, <laughs> you've got a little bit that you can talk to. What are some interesting facts, statistics, numbers, whatever, whatever you want to bring into, into the discussion? What are some of those things that really blow your mind or you find really interesting? Okay. So hold on to your seats, everyone, because this is concerning. <laughs> so while, while this may be relevant, it's not as relevant specifically to opioid use disorder. Well, it is, but that's not where I drew this stat from. Um, but I'll describe it anyway, outside of the context, and maybe you can link it uh, to how this would be relevant for opioid use disorder as well. So a recent study found that 4% of trials that include medical interventions are not prospectively or and or adequately registered. 
So what this means, I'll definitely break it down. What we need for a <laughs> intervention for us to be confident that we can use it and we feel like researchers have done a, an adequate and a good job of their study is we need these RCTs to be registered online before the trials have started. So what this means is that researchers go to this website, um, clinicaltrials.gov, there are many of them, and they describe what their plans are for their study. That way we know once the study's done, we can refer back to the published um, registration that's online uh, and see is what the authors said they were going to do, is that what they actually did? This is just sort of a basic baseline of expectations that we have to meet the bare minimum um, expectations to be confident in a study. So with drug trials, every drug trial has to be registered and they have to be, their findings have to be reported or else they get fined about $10,000 a day. So with any medication that you're taking, you're good to go. The trials have been registered in theory. I'm sure there are other limitations, but in terms of registration, right. you're okay. For interventions like complementary alternative medicine, psychosocial interventions like we've been discussing, nutrition, exercise, basically anything that's not a, a drug approved by FDA, what we found is that four or what's been found is that four percent of these trials, only four percent of these trials are registered, which means ninety-six percent of the studies that we're basing evidence on, we are we have no confidence in, which is really concerning. These include things like surgeries. <laughs> so if I go in for a surgery, I think of this because I think we have no idea if this is the right way to be cutting me open because our, our evidence right. is almost complete garbage if I can say that or it's we can't have the, that same confidence in it that we should right so it's yeah wow. it's very scary <laughs> yeah so by fun fact I meant to say like very scary <laughs> yes my apologies really worrisome fact yeah. look worrisome for the registration fact. number in articles in articles they the trials have to publish or if they do have it registered they'll publish this number if it's, if it's registered, you can sort of like breathe a little easier that at the very least it's registered. You don't necessarily have to go in and do all of the fine picking and, and see if it yeah. matches. You're already a step higher than a lot of the articles out there. So look for that registration right. number if you're deciding from your own intervention. So a juice cleanse, if I'm going to go on a juice cleanse for three weeks, I'd like to know if this is going to harm me. But I can't figure that out right now because the evidence isn't there. Right. I, and that's that's a that's a really good fact. That's a really interesting fact. Uh, water. Cooler I don't know fact. if that's a good fact. It's <laughs> no. like <laughs> Sorry. really worrisome. Intriguing. Fact. <laughs> it's a water cooler fact that you can just scare your coworkers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> family members with. I, I that that drive to uh, like pre-register your or essentially say what you expect to happen is really mm -hmm. important, especially when you're talking about those things like surgery or, or nutrition or, uh, interventions or, or psychological interventions. We need to have an idea of what you expect to happen uh, exactly. and not just say, oh, this happened even though we didn't predict it. Right. And even one of the huge ones that have, that's been found is that for something like uh, CBT, the authors will create their whole protocol and it'll be, it will be about targeting depression symptoms. But in their outcomes, they'll take depression and anxiety. That's all good. But if they find, often, if they find that depression didn't work with CBT, the, the outcomes aren't, um, aren't favorable, they'll just swap the outcomes and say, okay, we developed this protocol and anxiety was targeted. So if anxiety comes out significant, they'll swap the whole thing pretending that that was the plan, which again right. is so concerning because yeah, I, as a clinician, I'll, I'll base my 
um, my interventions, my protocols on what's out there. So this really influences patients and the care that they get and can be quite, um, yeah, quite concerning. Yeah, that post hoc, like we're saying, yeah. post hoc uh, analyses saying that, oh, we didn't really predict this, but here it is. Right. Uh, very problematic, uh, especially when you're talking about interventions. This is things that yes. you expect this to happen. So I'm going to say, before we run this study, I expect th- these results. And if these results don't happen, I should rep- I should be reporting that so that we exactly. have a better understanding of what has been done in the, re- in the literature instead of just ignoring it or not reporting it. Yeah, Danielle, if I, if I may, I, I think what I want to convey to the audience, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. is it's not necessarily wrong to say, hey, we set out to find this, we didn't, and instead we found this other really intriguing result that is important and interesting and worth talking about, mm-hmm. but we didn't find our initial result. That's not a problem. The problem is saying, oh, we set out to find this, and then we kind of found that, but it's not quite, and here's something else. Look That's here exactly instead. right. As long as it's and not even really addressing no... it. Oh, sorry. So no, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Danielle. Okay. You got it. As long as it's um, it's reported what you're doing transparently. It's no problem to say that you know we did this, we did this intervention for some weird reason. It didn't come out the way we wanted. Maybe hypothesize a few three a few reasons reasons why and what else you may have found. That's totally fine. The concern is when you're either uh, what we'd call selectively reporting the outcomes, so you're hiding some things that you decided uh, you didn't like the results, also because that influences other researchers. If I think that this protocol hasn't been tested on depression, I'm going to go do the exact same trial that you just spent, let's say, $200,000 on, even though that we already know the result, or some researchers already know the results but have hidden them. So as long as it's right. transparently reported, no problem doing post-talk, cool findings, like that's all good. It's really important when it comes down to it to be open and honest. I think sometimes yeah, then, the systems yeah. that are set in place don't really ben- or don't really foster that kind of thinking, which I, I think there's been a lot of drive t- towards changing that. And I think that's, that's why we're doing this thing, right? Uh, what we're doing right now, that we are trying to get this information out there so people can think critically. Uh, mm-hmm. And you, ideally, you don't have to think about what you're reading usually they like you you hope that they're reporting everything honestly openly honestly and you don't have to think and read between the lines when you're reading these kind of research articles for sure it's a little unfair to think that that readers would have to go sorry check a check a trial registration website to be confident in what they're reading that's that sort of does um, suggest there's a problem with the the system this shouldn't have to Mm -hmm. be the case that we're putting out research that may or may not be right right absolutely Absolutely. Very cool. That's a, I won't say fun fact. I've been saying fun fact. (laughs) It's a interesting fact. That's, it's very compelling. I'm glad you brought it to our attention. (laughs) So to to kind of wrap up, Danielle, I I think we, we generally kind of skimp on this section about, about the individual, but we, we do want to ask a couple questions about like what got you interested in the research area that you're in. So what kind of drew you in to that, to the research area or to the areas of work that you're doing now? So interestingly, <clears throat> enough, and often maybe a little different than, than other students, it's not specifically opioid use disorder. That was my, my passion or my drive. I'm really interested in it now, especially from the psychological aspect, since these are therapies that I do and these are patients that I see. Um, but what really has drawn me in is the methods that we use. I'm quite uh, interested and devoted to uh, knowledge synthesis methods. 
And I think that's because of the influence on guidelines. Systematic reviews are generally the type of studies that are used to inform guidelines that tell doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, everyone else what to do in care. And that's where I've mm -hmm. become really invested is doing systematic reviews in areas that are important. That's, that is such an, a crucial role when it comes down to translating research uh, into the real world and really having that real world impact. That's so crucial. So I'm glad that you are interested in that because we need more individuals like you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, what else do you want to touch on before we go? I mean, we can talk about a little bit about, okay. So Danielle, this is an important question because it kind of, it makes us understand that addictions are not something that just non-researchers have. <laughs> so what addiction you, you've stated to us that you have an addiction. Could yeah. you tell our viewers what that addiction is? So I have an absolutely awful addiction to chocolate. <laughs> I eat chocolate chip pancakes in the morning, I have lunch and a dessert, and I have dinner and dessert, and then I have a treat in the evening. I cannot Ooh. kick this habit, and I've tried unsuccessfully <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> it's quite bad. Well, what, what, is, what, is this, what is the lunchtime dessert, and what is the, the common lunchtime dessert and the common di like dinner dessert? I'm interested. So it changes by season. Um, in the winter, <laughs> hot chocolate is usually after dinner. Okay. Uh, in the summer, that's ice cream. At lunch, it's a little <laughs> bit of, depending where I am, often a cookie or um, a couple small, like Halloween size uh, chocolates, like Kit Kat or Arrow Bar or something like that. Oh my. Halloween must be just <laughs> deadly. Oh yeah. I still have, like, I go bulk. I go crazy the day after Halloween. <laughs> I guess that's the perfect time, right? That's Christmas for you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I did Easter a couple of weeks ago. That was also good. Oh, you know, I got to say, those Cadbury mini eggs, yes. those oh, are insane. Yeah. Uh, my fiance and I were amazing. driving home after a family dinner with a bag of, uh, of those in our car. And we were joking about the fact that if we got pulled over, we'd be like the one couple on the dash cam, like <laughs> dumping the bag out the window. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's are awesome. Talking... Or you share them with the cops. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The cops are like, <laughs> yeah, off. you could just give that to us. Yeah. Are we Sir, talking did you milk drop eggs? those out the, uh, sorry. <laughs> did you just dump a bag of mini eggs out your window? I <laughs> know, uh, sir. I was holding those for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those oh. are my mini eggs. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I'm I, I'm interested in whether or not it's the Cadbury milk eggs that you're talking about. You're talking mini eggs, though, right? The small, like the little yeah, the ones? small ones with those the little are, hard shell. Oh my god, mm -hmm. those are good. Oh, they're, they're good. deadly. Yeah, so I mean, that is a really good thing to to end on. I think is the fact that everyone has an addiction. Sometimes <laughs> everybody's <laughs> apt to have an addiction, and you're not impervious, even though you're no. doing the research in addiction. I mean, none of us are is, perfect. Yeah, no one is. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Danielle, we'd like to first of all thank you for coming on our show. We've been incredibly appreciative of your support and uh, uh, your time, and I think the episode has been fantastic. We hope our listeners will also enjoy it. Uh, can you give us a little uh, brief snapshot as to where we can contact you if if a listener has a question that's just burning? For sure. So I can be emailed. Um, I'll I'll say my email, but I think it'll probably be online somewhere as well. It's Danielle. It'll be on our website for sure. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll actually. Sorry, that's actually Close a really good point. On 
yeah on our on our website yeah. brainbuzzpodcast.com under the guest section we'll actually have you your photo um and a little uh a little link to to get in contact with you so absolutely people can find you there yes. um yeah that's great great that's thank you so much for having this. me no thank you it's, it's been a pleasure it's been really fun uh and uh yeah i guess kyle can do the rap you let us with the sign off all right well with that danielle thank you for joining us thank you all to our listeners uh for tuning in to yet another episode of brain buzz we're happy to have you along for the ride uh you can find us on brainbuzzpodcast.com itunes and google play at uh brain buzz podcast uh check us out on twitter at facebook instagram uh even on reddit you can find us there too uh you never know when i'll be checking up on all our social media feeds so don't hesitate to drop us a line uh if you'd like to be featured on our show if you'd like to come on shoot us an email uh brainbuzz podcast at g uh brainbuzz podcast at gmail.com uh, otherwise, uh, send us a tweet, send us a Instagram request, whatever it may be. Yeah, and and we're we're going to be doing roundtable episodes soon about different psychological uh, areas or just studies that people find really interesting. Just areas of human interaction that people are interested in. So if you have any ideas of things that you'd like us to talk about or look at within those or talk about within those uh, roundtable episodes send us a line, send us an email. We're, we're more than happy to address uh, topics of interest. Yeah, whatever you feel like um, may be an interesting topic, we're, we'll definitely dive into it. Uh, and with that, until next time, thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Cheers. Cheers.